You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. If the Lord had let Israel out of Egypt, Dayenu, if the Lord had wrought justice upon the Egyptians, Dayenu, if the Lord had wrought justice on their gods, Dayenu, this refrain from the old Passover song reminds those celebrating that God's generosity overflows each grand tale told of the mighty acts and the provision for Israel. It would have been enough merely to have such glorious memories, but as Stanley Hauerwas's most recent book, Approaching the End, reminds us, every act of God remembered well surges forward to set a future before the faithful, a path, a way to journey that transforms both our ways of imagining the world and the lives of the people who travel that way. Christian Humanist Profiles This Day welcomes Dr. Stanley Hauerwas to a conversation about the end, the people who sing the end, and the practice of theology as it forms us joyfully to embrace the end. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Hauerwas. Thank you very much. Well, I want to start with an essay that reminds me of something I really enjoy about your work, and, and it's that Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, you do theology not necessarily as an essay or even as a sermon, but as a riddle. Uh, and it's the piece from late in the book called Cloning the Human Body. Now, by the end of this theological riddle, I understand, among other things, that the question, should we clone human beings, stands as a way to avoid the hard questions of how our own deaths connect to the lives of those around us. But along the way, you invite readers to consider that the re- reproduction of the, cu- of, the hum- of the body of Christ happens every time we partake of the Eucharist, and in another context, how the pro- reproduction of disciples happens every time the church gathers as the church. <laughs> and baptism, of course. And baptism, yes. My question for you is, I mean, when you go about doing theology as a riddle like you do in this essay— uh, what sorts of things are you hoping to do for your readers, for your students? Why do theology as a riddle? I think that one of the challenges um, of, of, for Christians in the world we can find ourselves is to recover the oddness of the Christian faith. Uh, we become familiar with um, what we take to be, uh, for example, the Lord's Prayer. And we oftentimes, therefore, are not prepared to uh, hear again what an extraordinary thing it is to ask for daily bread, um, what an extraordinary thing uh, it is to uh, be forgiven, that we can forgive the enemy. Uh, so what I try to do is uh, discover ways of creating um, a distance uh, between what Christians say and what we think we're saying uh, as a way to remind us of what a radical thing it is to believe that uh, God was in Christ reconciling the world. Well, one of the things that I appreciate uh, about this A and also about one that you wrote years ago called... uh, why gays as a group are morally superior to Christians as a group, uh, is that so often when we talk about these so-called wedge issues in theology, uh, we're in such a hurry to answer the dull question that we run right past the interesting question. And I mean, one of the things I really like about this A and that one is that you bring us around uh, by this sort of riddling style to the more interesting question. And that, and that brings me to the introduction of this book. I mean, now I'm going to start going chapter by chapter through the thing a little bit more conventionally. Uh, one of the things that you counter is the frequent objection that I've, I've read a number of times to your work, that the church must somehow be pure in order to be a faithful witness to the gospel. Uh, it's not explicitly a riddle like the cloning essay is, but nonetheless, it is a paradox in a way to say that a body of saints... Uh, can serve as saints, even when we're not being saintly. Uh, One of the things that that I've learned from you over the years reading your books is that stories are where the action's at. So where can we Christians look to see a church still striving for faithfulness, not having reached it, 
and yet serving the world by showing that it is the world. Well, of course, one of the things that makes the church the church in the way that the world cannot be is we are uh, given the grace to be able to confess our sins. Uh, the world doesn't know sin. It is a great theological achievement to be able to locate the ways in which we are unfaithful as Christians. And that's part of what it means to be holy, to discover that you are a sinner uh, in a way that can accept forgiveness for that sin in a way that leads us to a new way of life. Um, so exactly uh, the church becomes the church through the creation of a people vulnerable to one another in a way that we can learn to rely on one another um, uh, to avoid our sinfulness. Uh, the, the saints, after all, testify unanimously that the closer they draw to God, the further they feel from God. I think that that's an indication of what it means to be holy, that is, to be capable of recognizing our sinfulness in a way that doesn't create a distance from God. Well, and that, that's one of the questions that also arose as I was reading that introdu introduction is, how would you talk about what it is that we show the world when we do confess our sins? Because one of the things that is central in your work in this book and in others is that the church is to be a visible gift to the world from God. Uh, what is the act of repentance in that schema? The um, the church um, has the body of Christ um, becomes an alternative to the world's desperate sense of trying to justify itself without God, and so Christians first and foremost represent a form of rest, that is, perfect activity, which is the worship of God in a world that knows not God. So, fundamentally, joy is at the very heart of what it means to be Christian, because joy is what is made possible for people who know that they do not need to justify themselves because they've been justified by God in a way that we could never achieve on our own. So one of the problems I see in a good deal of contemporary Christianity is a kind of desperateness. Uh, namely, people think, unless I can convince my neighbor to believe what I believe, then I may not believe what I believe is true. And that kind of desperateness um, uh, betrays the kind of joy that should be at the very heart of the gospel uh, and, in, and, and in Christian lives that is going to be extremely attractive to people who are dying of despair. All right, so how would you distinguish then between the Christian call to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors on the one hand and that desperateness that you just narrated that our neighbor might not believe? In, in other words, where does evangelism, or if you prefer the word proclamation, or if you want to distinguish between those two words, that's fine. How does that play into that story that you're telling? Well, evangelism, I'm afraid, um, is um, captured today by 
the picture of Billy Graham preaching in a football stadium. Sure. And that's thought to be evangelism. Um, the church's very existence is evangel. It's only when there is a body of people, not just a lone preacher preaching to individuals, it's only when there is a body of people who are acting as an alternative to the world that you know that evangelism is possible. Now, I mean, I was raised in a tradition, you know, uh, we once we had a, a church that was built of brick. We still thought every summer you had to put up a tent because you you could only be saved in a tent. <laughs> for, yeah. For, and that and that was evangelism, and Sunday worship wasn't. But what I'm trying to suggest is that indeed there is no deeper form of evangelism than for the world to see a joyous people worshiping God. All right. Well, on that topic of worship, uh, one of your early essays in this volume, The End of Sacrifice, sounds a note that your readers have read before, namely that America not only presents itself as object of religious devotion, but also constitutes itself religiously by sacrificing its own citizens in war. Now, mm -hmm. nobody's ever been to a Southern or a Midwestern Evangelical Church's Memorial Day services will deny that the outright appropriation of blood sacrifice language goes on. But I have a hunch that you could tell our listeners about some more subtle manifestations of that nationalistic sacrifice cult. Take a moment or two to do so. Well, uh, just think, I mean, I have nothing but the highest regard for the people that conscientiously serve in the American military. But think about how they are surrounded by the language of sacrifice. We cannot do enough to thank them for the sacrifices they are making. Mm -hmm. And yet, we don't really want them to tell us about what those sacrifices are. Uh, for example, I think the deepest sacrifice that we ask of people in the military is not just possible sacrifice of their life or their friend's life, but we ask them to sacrifice their normal unwillingness to kill. Mm -hmm. And exactly because we don't let them name what a, uh, a terrible thing it is to ask someone to envision killing another human being, uh, uh, I think that they are in many ways driven crazy by not knowing how to come to terms with what they've been asked to sacrifice, namely their normal unwillingness to kill. And so exactly what I think um, happens is that we surround the, the people in the American military with a celebration of their sacrifices that fails to get to the tragic character of what is going on there. And and as a result, that sacrifice um, becomes the, the defining sacrifice even more than Christ's sacrifice. Indeed, it, it, it's, what, it's what becomes how one understands what Christ has done, giving one's life for someone else. But in fact, I mean, the sacrifice of Christ was uh, um, um, God's refusal to let our violence determine God's, the life of God's Son. And therefore, it provided an alternative. Christ's sacrifice provides the end of sacrifices that we try to enact in order to have a standing over against God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that struck me as I was reading that essay in particular is precisely that there's a, I, I guess, a, a deep chasm, I would say, or maybe a, a gap of some sort uh, between, on one hand, the sort of 
anti-war stance that equates the policies of a nation-state with the existence of the individual soldier or sailor. And then on the other hand, uh, as you were noting, I mean, an air of celebration that says, whatever it is that happened over there, we don't want to hear about the particulars. We just want to say that it was a sacrifice. And it seems like that naming of what actually happened, that truth-telling, I, I'm, I'm curious, though, I mean, in what context do you see that going on? I mean, is this is this a good argument for evangelicals to appropriate the confession booth, or...? It's, uh, well, first, it would be a good argument for, for evangelicals to recover the Eucharist as the center of Christian worship. Yeah. Um, that would be a good place to begin. Um, uh, confessional is also not a bad thing. I mean, people people forget that in the Middle Ages, um, uh, even when warriors fought in what was alleged a just war, when they came back um, uh, to home, they were not allowed back into the Eucharist for three years. They had to do penance mm-hmm. um, um, because they had blood on their hands. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's serious stuff. Right. And, and you know, that plays out in uh, Shakespeare's Henry V around the campfire. It does. Uh, it does. You know, when Prince Hal, or actually King Hal at that point, uh, sneaks about convincing soldiers that to kill in war is not a sin. The only thing right. is what they do with the prostitutes on the side. I mean, that's, a, that's an ideological moment that a lot of folks no. look in that play. Good for you. It's those speeches. The, the speeches by Hal uh, at, at that time are um, powerful and frightening. Well, I've already tipped my hand that I'm an English professor and a, an evangelical of sorts. So I see. Let's, see, let's see how much I, how much else I reveal here. Um, well, I want to turn from that one to the essay "Witness," and one of the things uh, you know, I've, I've taught. Nicomachean Ethics a couple times now, and I appreciated your strong Aristotelian emphasis on Sophrosune, and I'd like to talk to you for a bit about your contention that, and I'm quoting here, theology is first and foremost an exercise in practical reason, and your contention that bearing witness, even or especially witness that the world seeks to kill, is at the core of confessing a Trinitarian God. Talk to those for a minute. Well, um, I think um, one of the forms of evangelism that's around today is the presumption that if you if you ju- if you just had our education and our money um, as good Americans, that's pretty much equivalent to being Christian, and uh, that is you're a nice person who. Uh, doesn't um, uh, do any uh, remarkably bad things. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, what I think that fails to do uh, is to appreciate the fact that the only way you know who Christ is is through the witness of another. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a personal relationship with God, but you go to church to have expressed you only know the God who is Jesus Christ through the witness of a people that have been bound through history to uh, one another in a manner that um, uh, makes the world the world. And they, as a matter of fact, therefore, learn to be Christian mediated through the church. My way of putting it is, um, I mean, offensively, without, uh, outside the church there's no salvation. Non-offensively, without the church there's no salvation, which means that the church itself is the memory, because Eucharist is memory, of what God has done for us in Christ that can be known across time and space by one person telling another. 
when uh, when I lived in South Bend, there was a uh, men a classical old men's clothing store named Gilbert's, and um, uh, Gilbert's would, if you can get over the irony of it, they would advertise on TV to say that the way the word gets around about Gilbert's is one man tells another. <laughs> now, <laughs> but um, um, uh, Christians and the gospel is um, contingent. It depends on people telling other people about, and the telling is too weak because their whole life must manifest what it means to be engrafted into this people that makes possible our learning what Christianity is through its exemplification in other lives. Mm-hmm. That's witness. Right. I'm reminded of uh, a section in Walter Brueggemann's uh, Theology of the Old Testament where he talks about God being in the practices of Israel, uh, whether that be of worship or of sacrifice. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a claim that, again, because of my own evangelical background, I mean, strikes me as offensive at first until I really think about the story of how I came to faith and how I've existed in faith. It is indeed always mediated, always brought to me. Uh, and really, I mean... What what I appreciate about that is that in a very real historical sense, in a way that doesn't require too much mysticism, uh, it is a doctrine of grace written upon a historical existence. I mean, absolutely. You know, no, I, that's a, I mean what Walter says. I think is exactly right, and and of course that's why I my account of Christianity is so determinably. Uh, um, uh, an account of how Christians, as a matter of fact, are engrafted into the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the roles that you have over and over said that you don't want to take on, although in this book you you express some appreciation for folks who do, is that of a systematic theologian. Uh, now, in this ongoing drama of witness and of transmission of tradition and of God being in the practice, uh, to what extent do the systematic theologians serve that ongoing drama and serve that people of God, and in what ways do they do a disservice to the people of God, as you see it? Well, by by systematic theology, I'm thinking primarily of 18th and 19th century German theology mm-hmm. that thought that Christian theology had to be systematized around one theological loci. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was uh, an attempt to turn theology into looking like philosophy. Um, um, The Christian faith is a web uh, uh, of... um, It's a web of, of concepts that depend upon exemplification in lives that constantly, like spiders, the web has to be adjusted and readjusted. So if you, uh, for example, so there is a constant role for um, theologians helping us understand the grammar of our faith in a way that helps us not forget why certain what may appear uh, not terribly significant uh, claims about our narrative are not to be forgotten if we are to uh, display the fullness of the story that makes us Christians. I mean, for example, if um, uh, uh, Trinitarian considerations um, uh, Namely, uh, uh, that we, first of all, believe uh, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is absolutely crucial to uh, remember what Christ has done on the cross. Because claims, for example, that God 
is a just God, and Jesus had to die to um, uh, satisfy God's uh, justice. Um, they mean satisfaction theories of the atonement. I mean, the problem with satisfaction theories of the atonement is they don't do justice to the Trinity because exactly they forget that Jesus is God. <laughs> I mean, Jesus uh, um, is, I mean, the, the justice of God is Jesus. Um, so it's not as if uh, the Father is some kind of angry being who Jesus has to satisfy, but rather the Father is exactly um, the first person of the Trinity who has willed the Son to endure um, uh, in our stead the violence that we perpetrate so that we do not have to reproduce it. Mm -hmm. So that's, those are systematic considerations that I think Christian theology must always be about. All right, all right. Well, one of the things that I, I really picked up on in a later essay, Habit Matters, uh, was a certain critique that you're exploring of Thomas Aquinas' notion of virtue and the good life. And that critique is that Aquinas is too ready to suppose a unified consciousness, uh, one that can be talked about you know, as a unity, whereas modern psychology has asserted or discovered or reminded us, and you can decide which of those is the most true, that our characters are inconsistent, if nothing else. Uh, I mean, is this a... First of all, it's a co-written essay, so if you want to say that it was the co-writer who... Had oh, that's me. Oh, that's, that's me. All right. all right. So, I mean, is there territory in this critique that a theology of sin uh, isn't adequate to account for? And if not, does this signal anything important for the rest of our engagement with Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas? Well... Um, I've been working on an essay on agency recently, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it starts with a quote from Austin Ferrer, a great philosophical theologian, English philosopher. And, it, and uh, the quote reads, if God's will means God's voluntary action, then it is a synonym for God himself. So what is a person but his voluntary action? Finite persons, indeed, such as we are, are so imperfectly integrated that they have no full possession of themselves and are not wholly in their acts. But such qualifications seem meaningless when transferred to God. In any case, play no part in the religious fact. Isn't that lovely? Only God acts without loss. Mm -hmm. We are never, as Pharaoh puts it, wholly in our acts. And of course, we're not wholly in our acts because um, we're not God. And therefore, um, uh, what I'm trying to get at um, is uh, in, in that qualification of Aquinas I'm trying to make mm -hmm. is exactly uh, how it is that um, we, we may think we know what we're doing when we're, when we're doing what we do, but I suspect that on the whole, our lives retrospectively must always come to terms with the fact that we were not wholly in our acts, and we only know that um, uh, long past the time that we acted. Mm -hmm. well, let me ask you this. How does that account of things differ from the self-justification you were talking about earlier as the project of sort of modernist ethics? Well, I think it's very, I think that, I think what, what, what destroys us is not necessarily what we do, but the reason, but, but the reasons we give try to justify what we've done. And therefore, uh, accuracy of description is, um, uh, is, um, uh, a deep, uh, and challenging project for any human being. And uh, so I um, had to, I mean, the gospel is a, is a narrative of truth that is always a challenge to our endemic 
um, temptation and self-deception. Well, one of your other essays in that same section, Whose Church, Which Unity, uh, takes as its title a nod to Alistair McIntyre, who is a frequent conversation partner in your books uh, and on the Christian Humanist podcast. We talk a fair bit about After Virtue. Uh, In that piece, you note that McIntyre's frequent insistence on living traditions uh, means that traditions are almost never static and they're almost never self-contained. Now, as you imagine things, what roles do the Christian teacher, the Christian preacher, and other followers of Jesus have uh, in this project of living in a world that Christians created but no longer control? Um, Well, our first responsibility, I think, is to challenge the um, sentimental renditions of the gospel that are still widely um, underwritten by this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, to, um, uh, I, mean, I mean, for example, I, 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 I mean, you run into people in this culture that will say something like, well, I believe Jesus is Lord, but that's just my personal opinion. I mean, what what creates uh, that kind of odd locution? It it clearly is a kind of um, uh, exemplification of the distinction between the public and the private, which has assumed that that my relationship with God is my own private relationship. It also brings to mind mind Nietzsche's aphorism that people only believe in God because they hold on to grammar. I think that's a case where the grammar has fallen apart. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. No, and so um, I think how to recover um, the sharpness of the gospel in a world in which uh, people have been quite clever in domesticating it is a very deep challenge. Mm-hmm. In in what sense have Christians created this world, though? That's the part of that statement that caught my attention, because one of the things, again, that your work gets accused of is sort of romanticizing the church over against the empire and ignoring the deep and troubled relationship that those two have had over the course of the centuries. Well, I think, I mean... And at least in the American context, my opinion is America is the first great experiment in Protestant constructive social ethics. Mm-hmm. And um, um, because it was assumed that while we don't have established church uh, legally, mm-hmm. um, the church was fundamentally socially established because you assumed that you needed to be a Christian nation in order to be a democracy. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think that uh, that is very deep. And um, you, you know you get it in American history with the Puritans and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I mean, we're slowly getting over it. But, um, uh, but that is the kind of ethos that um, Christians have um, uh, at once um, created, benefited from, and um, um, failed to challenge. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in that case, I mean, it brings uh, to the front a question of conflict and of identity. I mean, if it, if it is uh, a culture that Christians have created, and as you just said, from which Christians benefit, uh, what is the character then of a sort of confrontational engagement with uh, and a prophetic proclamation towards something that is also our own thing? I, I, I say, when people ask me, you know, what, uh, what can be done, I just say, don't lie. Don't lie. Um, trying very hard not to let the lies that speak us uh, from determining our lives. And so the first thing that Christians need to do for one another and for the world in which we find ourselves is just tell one another the truth. Mm-hmm. Tell one another the truth. Um, and that may mean oftentimes saying, 
I'm just not sure what the truth is. Okay. All right. Well, that that reminds me of another one of the essays in this same section, uh, War and Peace. And in that essay, you first of all, you note early that war itself is a contested concept and that some kind of ideology often lies behind efforts to distinguish war from other kinds of killing. Now, right. when you talk about, uh, for instance, Kant's theory of war uh, and the fact that he would limit it, but by doing so makes it an inevitable thing, uh, one of the things that you say that distinguishes Kant's ethics from Jesus is that for Jesus, ethics is for disciples. And I guess, yeah. again, living in a world that we have created and from which we benefit, uh, what does the prophetic call for Christians look like? Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about your work, and I see it uh, flowing from the work of John Howard Yoder, is that uh, it's not something where we build up a wall and we pretend that there are no nations, but rather right. we speak truth to nations. Right. How does that work when, as you have just noted, it's precisely Protestants who have built up this system that now wages perpetual war? Well, I think um, I think God is currently making the church leaner and meaner, mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully, uh, as we lose our political and social status, uh, we will discover we have less to lose, and so we can speak the truth to one another and to the world in which we find ourselves, um, and. Um, and be a people capable of being an alternative to war. Um, the, um, that would, um, um, I think that that's one of the things that God is doing to us. May I just say, you are a terrific reader. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, I, I, uh, I rarely uh, get someone that is um, so precise in reading uh, my essays. I, I appreciate it very much. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. I, I hope that I don't lose my uh, edge here now that you've laid a compliment yeah. on me. <laughs> well, I, I get, I'm just, um, uh, I mean, the way you see the interconnection mm -hmm. is um, very, uh, uh, very um, uh, um, satisfying to me, I have to say. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, well keeping with this line of questioning here for a second, though, uh, one of the objections that often comes up when Christians try to speak as witnesses to peace, uh, and it comes usually from self-identified secularists, uh, is that the people who most benefit from the militarism, from the economic exploitation, uh, from everything that is the American system, probably shouldn't be the ones who are trying to speak against that system. In other words, it's a, uh, mm -hmm. a, a lapse of... Yeah, they were parasites. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, um, um, I'm, um, uh, um, I think the only answer to that, I mean, and of course, uh, it is not clear we're paying the price for our convictions that we need to pay. Mm -hmm. But... Um, all I can say is, is tell me what price you want me to pay. Um, uh, I, um, I'm more than ready. For example, I, I'm, I'm extremely sympathetic with people that are called for police function and, uh, and who uh, have to deal with the underbelly of crime in this society, which is truly staggering. And then we blame police for being hardened. I say, let's. I'm more than ready as someone committed to nonviolence to enter into those kinds of discussions about what kinds of social orders do we need to be that people as Christians might be called the police function of the state and they don't have to wear weapons. I mean, how do we have to think about that? Now, those are the kinds of engagements I think that. Um, um, people that are committed to nonviolence must be ready to take up to show, indeed, that uh, we may have to pay some sacrifices for um, um, being committed uh, to nonviolence. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to take a turn here uh, 
to the last section of your book where you talk about questions of medicine and virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll admit, uh, the move that you make towards uh, talking about the virtues of patients rather than those of physicians first uh, took me off guard, really got me asking myself some some questions I hadn't really posed when it comes to medical ethics, so I really appreciated that. Uh, the examination of the virtues proper to a good patient was a fascinating exploration. But I had a problem theologically with your assertion on page 186 that illness and death are not the ultimate enemies. Um, When you make that assertion, how do you square that with the lament psalms where death is certainly the enemy, with so much of 1 Corinthians that talks about the conquest of Christ over death, with the centrality of resurrection to Christian theology more generally? How in the world could death not be the ultimate enemy? Um, it's really, um, but of course, death as that which has been brought into the world by sin is the ultimate enemy. Okay. Uh, um, um, well, that was too uh, easy. And, and I probably should, I shouldn't have, I should, I should have made that clearer. Okay. But, um, um, uh, and that that, um, um, is rightly to be, um, feared and um, um, resisted. The um, Augustine, interestingly enough, asked the question: If if, if we had no sin, would we have died? Would mm-hmm. would? Uh, and he, uh, he he wasn't sure, but he thought that some transition would have to be in which we lost the weight of the body since the weight of the body is finite and God wants us to be God's friends. So some some development would have had to have happened in which might have felt like a kind of death, which wouldn't have been fearful. The, the death we, we experience from sin is indeed fearful. We rightly resist it. But we don't resist it uh, in a way that all other aspects of life are are oriented to that end. And, you know, I say that, uh, I mean, uh, if you ask people how they want to die today, they say they want to die quickly, painlessly, in their sleep without being a burden. They don't want to be a burden because they don't trust their children. They want to be they want to die painlessly in their sleep and quickly because when they die they don't have to know they're dying. Mm-hmm. Where in in the um, um, Book of Common Prayer, um, in the Great Litany, we pray to save us from sudden death. Now why do why do people at one time wanted to be saved from a sudden death? Because what they feared was not death, they feared God. And they wanted to have a time and in their dying to be reconciled to God and God's church. And, and, um, but what we fear is just death. Now, that, I mean, that is, I take it, the kind of fundamental challenge that people uh, experience today uh, exactly because our deaths are not um, uh, seen as fundamentally qualified by our ongoing relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, the whole medieval notion of dying well, you know, the, the no, yeah. confession manuals, you know, that have... <laughs> the R's Miranda. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the uh-huh. the notion that, you know, the death that is, you know, first of all, you know, confessing sins, uh, mm-hmm. second of all, celebrating uh, the coming resurrection, so on and so forth. I mean, I think that that is definitely uh, something we've lost. I think you're right. Uh, but, you know, now that you've clarified that, that, you know, I mean, when you're talking about death as it is presented in the Lament Psalms, uh, that is an alien intrusion, you know. it's uh, and, and I'm trying to think of uh, John Milbank's formulation about that, you know, there is no original violence in Christian theology that, you know, death and sin and violence are always impositions of, and I can't, I, that's the phrase I can't think of, contrary right. will is what I want to say, but I don't think that's it. <laughs> no. All right. 
Well, another uh, medical question comes up uh, in the in the section called "Doing Nothing Gallantly," uh, and that is when you assert that the limit to life is a gift from God. And and again, I'm wondering uh, how you'd read the Genesis passage in which this text seem, in which the text seems to link that limit not to a blessing but to a curse. And beyond that, I wonder again uh, what you think of that gift, if it is indeed a gift, should interact with a Christian hope for the resurrection. Uh, again, theologically, I'm inclined to preach about Christ's victory over death, not about our terminus itself as a gift. Uh, would you have preachers proclaim otherwise? Well, death is once an enemy and a friend. Okay. If you... If you um, uh, if you didn't die, um, uh, life would just be one damn thing after another. Mm-hmm. But because we die, our deaths create an economy in which we learn to love this person with an intensity that we can't love all people with that intensity. Okay. So, and, and exactly because death creates an economy that makes life precious. It's why we so fear it, because we don't want to lose what we've come to love. Mm-hmm. And um, 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 therefore, there is a certain sense that I think death and our bodily character, which is intimations of our death, uh, create a um, an economy that um, we couldn't live without. All right. Well, as you think along those lines, I mean, I, I guess my tendency is to say that, you know, that is a virtue that is proper to the seculum in Augustinian terms, that, uh, you know, death cannot be a gift in eternal terms. It can't be something that no. you can imagine as the character of whatever it is that completes the kingdom of God, but that it can be a kind of providential gift in this time between the times. I mean, is that yeah, how that's you formulate that's a good way to put it? Okay, mm-hmm. all yeah. right. But let me pose this to you then. I mean, as we, you know, of course, we never, well, I guess never, I shouldn't say that, or you'll come up with an exception. Uh, but usually we encounter death not in the abstract, but in the funeral home. Uh, when yeah. it's someone we know, or, you know, it is, you know, someone who is being mourned by friends and family. You should only be buried where you've been baptized. So um, um, I think that um, um, the attempt to um, deny death through the kind of, um, of, of rituals that so oftentimes are associated with funeral homes um, failed to uh, connect that Christians are baptized into the death and life of Christ uh, in a way that we are rightly remembered in that context by being um, um, uh, brought bodily into where um, we were we received the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. At the Church Holy Family, where my wife and I are communicants, uh, we have a baptismal in the shape of a cross that we immerse. And oftentimes when our um, when communicants die, we put the coffin on that baptismal oh, and we okay. and, and we vigil it through the night. Uh, to remind ourselves that uh, this is a person that uh, whose baptismal death has now received his consummation. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. That really is. Um, well, so far up to this point, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, uh, and I'd like to let you take the wheel as we sort of head towards the end here. Uh, the microphone is yours. Uh, approaching the end is your most recent book. Uh, what sorts of things are you hoping that readers will pick up as we read? Um, 
how the eschatological character of the Christian faith uh, gives us a way to go on in a very confusing world. And um, that I hope it gives Christians um, confidence in our language in a manner that our language does real work for the world in which we find ourselves that helps us negotiate uh, the world with a joy and enthusiasm that is really attractive. So that's what I hope for. Can I ask you, what is your background? What do you teach? Do you teach? Well, uh, it's kind of funny. Like I said, I have known you for a number of years, even though this is the first time we're speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually learned my theology and philosophy from Phil Kennison at Milligan College. Oh, I see. (laughs) That, That explains a lot. (laughs) <laughs> you can't you can't do better than Phil. <laughs> oh, I agree. I agree absolutely. I I am still his student these years later, um, and so you know my own uh, church background is uh, Stone Campbell Christian Churches Church. Of I, see. I see. I uh, see. And actually, I've been the interim preacher at Athens Christian Church in Athens, Georgia, for about two and a half years now. So I see. I see. Very good. No, now, I, now I, I do my teaching at uh, Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, which is uh, historically a affiliated with the International Pentecostal Holiness Church. So I see all very good. That's yeah. great. And well, uh, it's lovely to, to to make your acquaintance. And again, I appreciate the um, uh, care with which you read the book. Well, thank you, thank you. But it was there at Emmanuel that uh, a uh, theology professor by the name of Paul Oxley taught me that. You really have to be a Pentecostal to read Plato's Phaedrus properly. <laughs> That's terrific. That so, is terrific. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm going to have to say goodbye because um, I have another phone call coming in. All right, all right. But it's been, it's been lovely being in, in uh, uh, discussion with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Hauerwas, for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. And this is Nathan Gilmore bidding all of you a good day.